0: We have a very important subject to study tonight, the Bible's secret of health and wealth. So let's get right into our study. I'd like to invite you to uh, look up in your Bibles our first reference in our study tonight. It's found in Isaiah chapter 14, and we want to read verses 12 through 14. And we've read this before, but it's necessary to read it again Uh, because it's going to shed light on what we're going to study tonight. Of course, this is speaking about the original sin of Lucifer in heaven. And I want you to notice what the main sin was that he committed. And it's indicated by a one-letter word. Notice verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart. Notice that before he's cast down, he said something in his heart. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. There's no doubt whatsoever that the great sin, which is described here, is the sin of self-love, greed, covetousness, selfishness, or whatever other synonym you want to give to this sin. You notice that six times in this passage of three verses... The word I is used. In other words, the great problem which originated sin in the universe was the problem of selfishness, self-centeredness. Now, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 28, we're not going to read the whole passage, but I'd just like to say that in Ezekiel chapter 28, once again, the sin of this being, Lucifer, is described. And if you read that chapter carefully, you're going to discover that Lucifer really was guilty of four sins. And all of them, of course, are related to pride and self-centeredness. The first of those is, it says there in Ezekiel 28, that he corrupted his wisdom. In other words, his wisdom, which was given by God, he came to the conclusion that it belonged to him. Uh, originally, innately. The second of these sins is the sin of accumulating riches. Interestingly enough, in chapter 28, this is mentioned several times, his desire to accumulate riches. The third sin, by the way, I call these the sins of pride. The third sin, which is mentioned in Ezekiel 28, is the desire for power. In other words, the desire to occupy a place which was above the place that God had given to him. And in uh, in the fourth place, his beauty or his physical appearance led him to be filled with pride. And so the very original sin which was committed in the universe had its origin in pride, self-centeredness, selfishness, the desire to ascend and look out for number one we might even call it a severe case of upward mobility. But I want you to notice that both in Isaiah 14 as well as in Ezekiel chapter 28, after it tells us that Lucifer thought he could ascend because of his wisdom, because of his riches, because of his power, because of his beauty, the four sins of pride, after it says that he tried to ascend and he thought he could ascend, To occupy the throne of God, immediately we are told in the Bible that because he exalted himself, he was thrown down. He was cast down. I want you to notice that once again in Isaiah chapter 14. And uh, this is very important for uh, setting the stage for what we're going to talk about in our lecture tonight. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 15. Immediately after we've read that Lucifer aspired to... exalt himself to the height of God, notice what verse 15 says, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol. Sheol is the grave. You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Notice he wanted to ascend to the highest position, and what happens as a result? He is cast down to the lowest position notice also in Ezekiel chapter 28 Ezekiel 28 and let's read verse 17 all the way through verse 19 Ezekiel 28:17 your heart was lifted up because of your beauty you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor I what did God do as a result of that I, cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to what? To ashes upon the earth. Do you notice that the one who had a severe case of upward mobility ends up where? In the dust. So he who wants to go up ends going where? Down. Now let's notice a New Testament example. And by the way, the Bible mentions two mysteries. Two mysteries are mentioned in the Bible. One is called the mystery of godliness and the other is called the mystery of iniquity. And we're starting out our study tonight with the mystery of iniquity. Now let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and notice what the spirit of uh, the mystery of iniquity is, what characterizes the mystery of iniquity. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, and the context indicates that this is the day of the coming of Jesus, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the mystery of iniquity is characterized by, by a power which wishes to what? To ascend. To occupy a how, higher position. To look out for good old number one. And in the process, it doesn't matter if you have to trample and step upon others. But what's going to be the result of this? Of this mystery of iniquity, this antichrist who wants to make himself God and wants to ascend. Notice what it says in verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of His mouth and destroy with the brightness of His coming." So we notice that the mystery of iniquity is characterized by an individual, a person, or a power, which is down here, but it aspires to a higher position than what God has determined. But when it aspires, or when the person aspires to that position and tries to reach it, he's cast down into the pit and destroyed. You know, the Lord Jesus described this process in the book of Luke. If you go with me to Luke chapter 14, we'll notice that Jesus himself described this idea. Luke chapter 14 and verses 7 through 11. Luke 14, 7 through 11. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, what mystery is involved here? Which mystery is this? The mystery of iniquity. Why? What do they want? They want the best places, of course. Notice verse 8. When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, and he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. And then comes the lesson. For whoever exalts himself. Who does the exalting? I do. Whoever exalts himself will be abased. Who abases him? Does he abase himself? No, someone else does. He who exalts himself will be, by someone else, abased. And then he says, and he who humbles himself will be what? Will be exalted. Jesus also expressed it by saying, he who is first will be what? Last. And he who makes himself last will be first. He who thinks to save his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus sure spoke in a strange way, didn't he? Totally contrary than the world today. The law of the jungle, the law of Wall Street. Trample on the little guy and make yourself number one. Isn't it true that the world is characterized primarily by that spirit of the mystery of iniquity even within the church? Notice Matthew chapter 23, the same idea expressed by Jesus and this is in a different context. Now he's pronouncing the woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees because all they have is an external religion. They want to be seen when they pray. They want to be heard when they pray. They want to be seen when they tithe. They want to be seen for their piety. And notice what Jesus says in chapter 23 and verse 12. And whoever exalts himself will be abased. And he who humbles himself will be what? exalted. Who is it that humbles himself? I do. Who does the exalting? Someone else. Now if I humble myself, who does the exalting? Someone else does the exalting. So in other words, I have to decide whether I am willing to occupy the last place so that God will then give me in His time the first place, or whether now I want to occupy the first place, and then God will say, you will occupy the last place, because the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now, the mystery of godliness is totally the opposite of the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of iniquity seeks to ascend, to grasp for power, It becomes proud because of its beauty, because of its wisdom, because of its position, because of its riches, and looks down on other people. The mystery of godliness is just totally the opposite. It's when one who is way above decides to come down and humble himself. I want you to notice this as it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Here it's speaking about the Lord Jesus and the mystery of godliness. We've already noticed the mystery of iniquity. Now let's notice the mystery of godliness. It says there in verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then what does it say? God was what? Was manifested in the flesh. In other words, God who was up there, what did He do? He came down. He who was highly exalted humbled Himself. Let's notice another passage where this process of the Godhead coming from the highest position down. Notice this other passage in Scripture that describes that process. The book of Philippians, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible because it describes the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the mystery of godliness. Notice chapter 2 of Philippians and starting with verse 5. And I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul is giving this passage to teach us a lesson. In other words, this isn't just some deep theological concept that he's sharing. Here, he's using this to teach us what we should do. Notice verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, what form was Jesus in? In the form of God. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Better translation is, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or something to be hung on to. What did he do? Verse 7, "...but made himself..." Who did it? Did the father say, Get down there, son. Redeem those people down there. They need you. No. It says, "...but made himself of no reputation." In other words, he emptied himself, as other versions say, taking the form of a what? A servant. Here's the Lord, the highest power in the universe... And what does he do? He says, I'll no longer be Lord. I'm going to be what? Servant. But it's going to get worse. Because it says, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Notice again the idea that he, already when he was a man, he humbled himself even more. It says he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. So the one who was way up there, what did he do? He came all the way down here. The Lord became a servant. God became human flesh. God came down. God was manifested in the flesh. But do you remember what Jesus said? He who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. We already noticed that about Lucifer, about the mystery of iniquity, the Antichrist, They exalt themselves, they will be humbled. But what about Jesus? Jesus humbled himself. What happened after Jesus humbled himself? Notice verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, what does therefore indicate? Because of the previous experience, right? Therefore, he has highly exalted himself. Uh, Thank you very much. There are people out there, after all. Notice, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Who did the humbling? Jesus. Who does the exalting? His Father. So it says, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name. Who has given him the name? The Father. And has given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Jesus Christ. To the glory of whom? Of God the Father. Do you know, folks, that throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity our Lord Jesus Christ is going to exalt and glorify His Father? You might say, well, of all things, didn't he come down here and work hard and die on a cross? He should go back to heaven and demand his rights. I mean, after all, he did all of the dirty work, didn't he? So what is this that when he gets to heaven, he highly exalts his Father? Because, folks, the principle upon which the universe functions, the principle of life, is the principle of giving. The principle of selfless service. The principle of serving without expecting anything in return. For that reason, there are many passages in the Bible where this idea of serving and giving are highlighted. Let's notice some of them. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Let me ask you, the spirit of self-exaltation, what does it lead to? Death. The spirit of humility leads to what? To life. So giving leads to life and selfishness leads to what? To death. That's the reason why most human beings in the world are going to be lost because the principle that governs their lives is the principle of selfishness and selfish people are never happy. They might think they're happy, but they're not happy. They are miserable. And we're going to notice in a few moments that some of the richest people in the world are some of the most miserable people in the world. So thank the Lord tonight that you are poor. You don't know how much trouble people have, for example, when they win the lottery. After they totally spend all of the money they're in worse condition than they were before they won the lottery. Isn't that right in many cases? Well, folks, we need to be satisfied with the idea of simply rendering God and our fellow human beings service. Self-abnegating service. That is the law that governs the universe, the law of life. Now, let's notice several texts where this is clearly mentioned. Go with me to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Matthew 20, verse 28. Here our Lord Jesus is speaking. And notice what he says. And let's read verse 27 for the context. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your what? Your slave. Does Jesus ask us to do something that he wasn't willing to do? No, because in the next verse he says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Did Jesus want to be first? No. Did Jesus want to be served? Did Jesus want people to give to him? No. It says clearly that he chose to be last. He chose to serve, and he chose to give. And by the way, that's the reason why he's alive today. Because if he had adopted the spirit of the mystery of iniquity, he would never be exalted in heaven. Notice Acts chapter 20. This same idea of serving, of giving, as the mystery of godliness, the principle upon which there is life in the universe Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. And here we're going to find some words that the Apostle Paul attributes to Jesus. It says there, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to what? To give than to receive. I hope you remember that when Christmas time comes around. And you're thinking about the gifts that you're going to buy for your pastor. Just kidding, folks. Doesn't hurt to hint, though. Now, notice Matthew chapter 10 and verse 8. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 8. Once again, we find the same idea of The spirit of the mystery of godliness, giving, serving. It says there in Matthew 10 and verse 8, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely what? Give. There's the word again, give. Notice Acts chapter 6 and verse 38. And by the way, I only placed a representative few statements in this outline that you have of texts, but there are literally dozens of texts that use this word give, serve, etc. And by the way, you remember the Lord Jesus actually stooped to wash the feet of his own creatures. So he doesn't ask us to do what he's not willing to do. Notice Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Thirty-eight. Give, I said. Uh, maybe I said Acts, but it's Luke six verse thirty-eight. Did I say Acts? It's Luke. Well, same author. Notice what it says there, Luke six thirty-eight. Give, and then what? And it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down. In other words, no no cheap measure here. I mean, they're going to fill up the cup, they're going to press it to get a lot in. Pressed down, shaken together. If it has to be powder, happens to be powder or something like that, you shake it together so you can get a lot in. Running over, that's speaking about a liquid, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, It will be measured back to you. Notice, give and it will what? And it will be given unto you. Notice the counsel of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap what? Sparingly. If you plant one seed of corn, what are you going to harvest? Well, there's going to be one stalk of corn. There might be one, more than one ear on it. Let's say there's two or three. But what happens if you plant 100 seeds of corn? Then you're going to harvest a lot more. So what you invest in giving, you will actually receive back, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Once again, verse 6. But this I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. There it is. What is the principle in all of these texts that I've read so far? It's the principle of what? Giving. The principle of serving, the principle of helping other people, giving freely. That is the principle of life. Let me give you some illustrations so that you can understand. You know, the only really terribly selfish uh, being in this world is man. Because nature teaches us the law of giving as the basic law of life. Give you an illustration from right here, around here, so that you can visualize it. East of Fresno, we have the beautiful Sierra Nevada. And by the way, I guess they've had lots of snow in the last couple of days up there, uh, above 6,000 feet. It's kind of early for snow, but evidently there's a lot there. Now, I want you to, to, to notice what happens with the cycle of water. The clouds in the sky give their snow to the mountains in the winter. The mountains keep the snow until the sun gets warm in the spring. The sun shines upon the snow. The air warms. And now the mountain gives its water to the brooks. And the brooks give their water to the streams. And the streams give their water to the rivers. The king's river. And then the king's river gives to the reservoir and whatever is left over goes to the ocean and then what does the ocean do? The ocean gives its water to the clouds and the cycle begins all over again. What would happen if at some point the clouds, for example, said, Oh, we're so white and fluffy. We're so beautiful. We can't give up our water. We have to keep this water so that people will admire us. Supposing the clouds could think and could speak and the clouds decided not to give their water, what would happen? Everything in creation would die. What would happen if the mountains said, oh, we're such beautiful snow-capped mountains. Look at the way people admire us when they fly over us when they look at us, we're so beautiful. How can we give up that fluffy white snow then we'll just look ragged and blah in the summer? What if the mountains said, we're not going to give our water. Everything in creation would die because the principle of life, the principle of happiness, the principle of wealth, the principle of wellness is the principle of the mystery of godliness. It is giving And giving, and giving. And interestingly enough, when we give, we receive. The mountains give, and when the cycle goes around, once again, they receive. Let me give you another illustration. A tree. A tree fulfills several functions. One function is to give a shade. Does the tree shade itself? No. The summer, it's 110 degrees in Fresno. Those times are past until next year. The sun is beating down upon the tree. You're walking down the street, oh, I could just use some shade. So you see this big tree, you get under the tree. Ah, what a relief. The tree is receiving all of the heat of the sun so that you can have shade. The tree gives. Do you know what else the tree does? The tree, uh, trees are the lungs of a city. Thank God for Central Park in New York City. If it wasn't for that, I don't know what would happen to that city. But the fact is that trees, they breathe in, they inhale all of the toxic waste in the air, and then what do they do? They exhale clean air. How would you like that, job? Trees produce fruit, but the interesting thing is, the tree doesn't eat the fruit. We do. The tree makes fruit for us. Trees provide wood to build homes. Trees provide places for nests of birds to live in. Trees exist for service, not for themselves, but for others. All in nature teaches this principle, the law of service, the law of giving. It's the law of wellness, the law of happiness, the law of life. When we save for ourselves, we're miserable. When we give, we are filled with joy. If you don't believe it, try it. You'll like it. There are many other examples from nature. You know, I think, for example, of the two seas that are over in the land of Israel. How many of you have been to Israel? Well, struck out. There are two seas in Israel. One is the Sea of Galilee. You know, when you look to the north in Israel, you see on a clear day the gigantic Mount Hermon, which is uh, just north of Caesarea Philippi, where Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, and, and when it warms up, the snows of Mount Hermon melt and the waters descend very fast to form the Jordan River. In fact, the word Jordan means the descender because where the Jordan originates, it descends at a very rapid speed. And then, of course, it reaches the valley and then you have the Jordan River goes for a while from the north until it goes into the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is surrounded by lush, luxuriant vegetation. Everything is green. That's where Jesus pronounced the Beatitudes, on the north, uh, the northwestern section of the Sea of Galilee. Green, beautiful flowers. You can hear birds singing in the air. You can watch the fishermen as they bring in their nets, even today, filled with fish. The Sea of Galilee is full of life. It's bubbling with life. Then, from the southern, border, southern tip of the Dead Sea, the waters of the Jordan River go out, and they continue flowing south. And the waters of the Jordan River end up in the Dead Sea. And believe me, when the Bible calls it the Dead Sea, it's exactly that, dead. There is nothing alive in it, not even microorganisms. Everything surrounding that area is dead. No trees, no vegetation, no birds, obviously no fish. In fact, the waters of the Dead Sea are so full of minerals that you couldn't drown if you tried. You float, it's so salt. Now, why is everything connected with the Sea of Galilee alive, whereas what is connected with the Dead Sea, dead? For a very simple reason. The Sea of Galilee receives water from the north and gives it in the south. But the Dead Sea does not give anything. The Jordan River ends there, and the water becomes stagnant, and everything becomes dead. Listen, folks, if Lucifer had sat on the throne of the universe, the whole universe eventually would have been extinguished because the law of self-service is the law of death. The law of giving, the law of serving is the law of life. Now, I would like to read a passage that speaks about Financial resources. Do you know that the, that the place where people are most selfish and self-centered is in the use of their financial resources? All you have to do is visit Wall Street a certain day. I'm sure you've seen it on television. It's pandemonium. If you've ever walked on the floor there where the stock market is, it is pandemonium. Everybody is running here, there, to try and make money and more money for whom? For themselves. The large corporations merge not so that they can serve the customer better, but so that they can agglomerate huge amounts of money and in this way accumulate power. How do we find uh, how do we handle and manage our financial resources? Sometimes we think that we're the owners of our financial resources. But the Bible says that that's not so. Notice what the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 6 through 10. Apostle Paul says something extremely important. He says, but godliness... Remember that word? We've looked at it before. But godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, godliness and being satisfied with the blessings that God has given you is what? Is great gain. Verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world. Is that true? What did you have on when you were born? Your birthday suit, thank you very much. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. How much can you take with you when you die? Listen, when God gives you life, you have. When you no longer have life, you don't have. Isn't that right? So where do we get the power to accumulate material possessions? Not from ourselves, but from God. You say, well, I work hard for it. Okay, you work hard for it. Who gave you arms and legs to work with? Who gave you lungs to breathe? Who gave you a mouth and a tongue to speak? I think you need to speak in order to work. Who gave you a beating heart? God! So what God did was give us all of the resources necessary so that we could work and we could make what? And we could make money. Notice what the Apostle Paul continues saying in verse 8, And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, there's only two kinds of people in the world, the rich and those who wish they were the Apostle Paul is not speaking about the rich. He's speaking about those who want to be rich. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You'll notice that the expression kinds of is in italics, which means that literally it says in the original that money is the root of all what? Evil. Think of it. Is money the root of the drug trade? Yes or no? Is money the root of the price of gas? Yes. And many other things we could talk about. When you really think about it, the love of money is the root of all evil. So the Apostle Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many what? With many sorrows. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18, the Lord tells us that it is he who gives us the power to make what? The power to make wealth. Have you ever read in Luke chapter 12 verses 15 to 21 this man who uh, whose fields produce bountifully and he said, you know, I need to build bigger barns because I can't get all of my produce in my barns. And so he builds bigger barns and ever bigger barns to accumulate more and more. Do you know what the Lord Jesus said about him? This night your soul will be demanded of you. In other words, your life will be demanded of you. God cannot take selfish people to heaven, folks. If he did, they would be using a pick to tear up the precious stones in the foundations of the city. They would probably try and tear off the pearly gates from their hinges to save them. I'm exaggerating to make a point. God cannot take selfish people to heaven. People who believe that they need to serve themselves, that they need to accumulate for themselves instead of realizing that they need to give to others. Jesus said, he who saves his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will save it. Now I want you to notice Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 to 21. This is a passage that you probably could uh, repeat from memory. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 to 21. It says there, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. What are we not supposed to do? Lay up what? Treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal you know, you've noticed what's been stop- happening with the stock market recently? I remember about six, eight months ago, people were saying, oh, the stock market could reach 25,000 in the next two years. And everybody was investing in the stock market, buying stocks and buying bonds, and just wanting to accumulate a fortune. Well, the stock market has gone south, and eventually this, the stock market is going to explode. What happens if you invested your money in banks and in the stock market? What's going to happen with that money? It is all going to be lost. So Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven. Now what does he mean? Let's continue reading verse 30. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How much do you talk about God and church and scripture compared to what you talk about your job and you talk about your investments? You don't have to answer me, but have mercy if my suspicion is right. Many times we speak a lot more about our car, our house, the money we have in the bank, what's happening with the stock market, what's happening with interest rates, instead of talking about God's word, about spiritual things. That's what Jesus meant when he said, where your treasury is, there will your heart be also. Now the question is, how can we invest in the bank of heaven? Can you make an electronic transaction? How do we invest in heaven? Do you have to talk to NASA for them to put your, your money on one of those uh, shuttles? Space shuttle? so that it can be sent up to the third heaven. Of course, they never can reach the third heaven. They can probably only take it as far as as the moon. But the Lord lives in the third heaven. How do you make investments in heaven? I'll tell you how. The Bible teaches us that it is by investing in God's cause, in spiritual things. Now, how do we invest in spiritual things? Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, and I want to read verse 23. Matthew 23 and verse 23. I want to talk for the next few moments about the biblical concept of the tithe. Ever heard of the tithe? Huh? You've heard of the tithe? What is the tithe? Ten percent. Are you giving anything to God when you return the tithe? Are you giving God anything? No. No because that's God's test to see if you recognize that everything is his that's his in the first place it's not yours it just goes through your checkbook into the church into the church plate now could god up front discount the tithe from our check could he of course you know sometimes they give us pastors the option they say do you want us to take your tithe out of your salary, at the office. I say, no, I don't want that. Because I want to be able to make out my check and I want to be able to put it in the offering plate. Because it's a test to see whether we truly recognize God as the owner of everything. Now let me ask you, did Jesus believe in the tithe? Do you know that there's only one statement in the gospels where Jesus mentioned tithe? And therefore some people say Jesus didn't believe in the tithe, he only mentioned it once. Let me tell you something. Did Jesus believe in the Sabbath? Do you find any command in the New Testament where Jesus says, Thou shalt keep the Sabbath? No. Do you find any statement where he directly says, Thou shalt tithe? No. Why not? For the simple reason that everyone was or claimed to be keeping the Sabbath. Didn't they? What was the problem? It was not that they were not keeping the Sabbath, but they were keeping it with the wrong spirit. In the same way, people were tithing, but they were tithing in the wrong spirit. So what Jesus had to do was not to teach people that they were supposed to tithe because people were already doing it. He had to teach people the real reason for tithing and how to tithe in the right spirit, how to keep the Sabbath in the right spirit. Are you with me? Notice Matthew 23. And verse 23, after talking about the scribes and Pharisees who lived on the basis of externals, they used their giving, they used their praying, they used uh, everything to exalt themselves before men and try to make men think how great they were. Jesus says in verse 23 the following, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin are small seeds or small leaves. In other words, of every ten seeds of cumin, there would nine for me and one for you. I mean, they were meticulous tithers. So it says, For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, but have what? Have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. So he says, have justice, mercy and faith and forgive the tithe. Uh-uh. Notice what he says. These you ought to have done. In other words, you need to have justice, mercy and faith without leaving what? The others undone. In other words, Jesus says that we need What? Not either or, but both and. Did Jesus reinstitute the principle of the tithe? He most certainly did. But he said, you need to tithe in the right spirit. Let's go to what the Apostle Paul had to say about tithing. First Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1. First Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1. Here the Apostle Paul is going to speak about the principle of tithing. He's going to confirm what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 23 and verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9 and verses 1 through 14. Notice what the Apostle Paul says, and we'll move through this very quickly. See, they were criticizing the Apostle Paul uh, because they claimed he wasn't an apostle, and they were also saying that the Apostle Paul was in the ministry to make money. Now, notice the answer of the Apostle Paul. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, I through the grace of Christ, I won you to the gospel. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? That is those who are preaching the gospel. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, in other words, the other apostles, their wives, they could take with them. And their expenses were covered. Notice verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? And then he gives four examples. He says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, Imagine the government, say, recruiting soldiers and saying, okay, now you've got to pay your own uh, airline ticket to the battlefield. Who would, re- who would actually enlist? So he says, whoever goes to war at his own expense. The answer is nobody. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Again, the answer he's seeking is Nobody. Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Again, nobody. Do I say these things as a mere man? In other words, is this just some counsel, some human counsel I'm giving to you? Or does not the law say the same also? Now he's going to quote the Old Testament. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Why? Because as the ox was treading the grain, he had a right to eat. He was working, so he had a right to eat. And then the Apostle Paul says, is it oxen God is concerned about, or is there something deeper in this concept? Verse 10, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, Is it a great thing if we reap your material things? In other words, if we're preaching the gospel for ministers of the gospel, is it much to to expect that those who are being preached to should sustain the minister of the gospel? Verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. And now notice verses 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things, who were those in the Old Testament that ministered to the holy things? The priests. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Who were those? The priests. How were the priests remunerated for their work? From what? From the tithes. You can read it in Numbers 18. Uh, is that still God's plan today? For those who preach the gospel, who minister the gospel full time? Notice verse 14. Even so, the Lord has recommended. Thank you. Even so, the Lord has suggested. <laughs> Even so, the Lord has commanded. Who has commanded? Paul? No, no. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. As the priests live from the tithe, the ministers of the gospel should also live from what? From the tithe. You know, I would never be able to pastor this church full time unless I was remunerated from the tithe because I I would have to work on something else. So that would consume a lot of my time. I wouldn't be able to meet the needs of the congregation. And so God says, forget this idea of going out and moonlighting. You're going to work full time as a minister of the gospel. But if the minister of the gospel is serving the needs of the congregation, the congregation should care for the material needs of the pastor. Is that fair? So when you tithe, you're not really, uh, you're not really contributing anything. What you're doing is making an investment for you. Because, you see, your tithe comes back to you in the services of the pastors of the church, to your spiritual needs. So don't think, oh, okay, I got to uh, write down my expenses for this month. 10% of my expense is for God. It's not an expense. It is an investment. Now, let's talk just for a few moments about not only tithes, but offerings. You say, have mercy. Offerings too, pastor." Well, the tithe isn't ours in the first place, so when you return the tithe to the Lord, you're not being generous. You're not giving Him anything. In fact, if we don't return the tithe, it says in Malachi 3, verses 8 and following, that we're, that we're robbers. We're stealing. It's like holding up a convenience store. But it's not stealing from man. it's stealing from God. But what about offering? You remember the story of the little widow. We don't have time to read it. It's in Luke chapter 12, 41 to 44. Remember the little widow that uh, Jesus observed when she she came uh, to the uh, coffer of the temple? And Jesus says that he was observing that there were lots of rich people that would come and they would throw in their large contributions. And everybody would say, Wow, look how much he gave. Wow, look how much she gave. That's a real generous person. Then comes this little widow hiding among the crowd. She takes two little mites, a couple of pennies today. She takes those pennies and she throws them in the coffer and she moves on. Jesus is watching her. The disciples are there and Jesus says, Look, look, look. This little widow gave more than all the rest of them. You know why? Because the rest gave from their abundance, whereas this lady gave everything she had. You see, folks, what you give is not measured by how much you give, but by how much you have left after you gave. That's how sacrifice is measured. Sacrifice doesn't have to do so much with how much I give, but with how much I have left over after I gave. The reason why this little widow gave more than all the rest is simply because she gave everything that she had. And God expects us to give all that we have to his cause everything that is not absolutely necessary to sustain our life let me conclude by telling you a story that we find in the Bible Jesus mentioned this widow in Luke chapter 4 25 and 26 this widow in Zarepta this is at his sermon in Nazareth where he said in the days of Elijah the Lord didn't visit the widows of Israel he visited a widow who was a Gentile now when you go back to the Old Testament and you study this story, it, it, it's very interesting. This little widow was picking up a few sticks to make a fire. She was going to use the last flour and the last oil that she had to make a couple of cakes of bread and then die with her son. And so the prophet Elijah comes and he says, first of all, get me some water. That was a luxury because it had rained for three years. But she says, okay, so when she's going to get the water Elijah says, oh and by the way make me a small loaf of bread, and the widow then she says to Elijah, "Now wait a minute. All I have is a little flour and a little oil, and I'm going to make a couple of uh, small loaves of bread, and then my son and me are going to eat. We're going to have our last meal, and we're going to die." You would think that Elijah would say, "Oh, I'm sorry," you know, "I'm sorry, I asked." No, but he presses the point. He says, "He says, okay, go and make the loaves of bread." He says, "But bring me a little loaf first. Man, talk about stealing from the widows. I mean, why didn't he just allow this widow to eat her loaf and her son, his loaf, and then die? He asked for a little cake first for him, for God's minister. And then God gave a promise. God never asks us to do something without at the same time giving us a promise. He always asks, and then he says, if you do this, this is my promise. Through Elijah, God said to this little widow, if you do as I say, if you give my prophet the small portion first, there will be no lack in the oil and in the flour until it rains again on the earth. Did the faith of this woman have to be tested? Did she know for absolute certainty that... What the prophet was saying was true? Or did she have to test God? She had to test God. She decided to. She went in. She made a small cake. And she gave it to the prophet first. And you know what? She got far more than she gave. Because the Bible says that there was enough oil and there was enough flour to eat plenty until it rained again on the earth. Here we see the principle that we're talking about the principle of happiness and joy, of health and wealth. Give and it will be given unto you. We can never be too generous for God. The day is coming. According to Ezekiel 7 and verse 19, where people are going to take their gold and their silver and they're going to throw it on the streets. And they're going to say, What use is this? We're lost. We're going to be destroyed. What good does it, have to ha- does it do to have this gold and this silver? No. if we perish, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? I pray to the Lord tonight that each one of us will have the principles of the mystery of godliness implanted in our hearts. That we will be faithful to God in giving him the first and the best, not only of our money, but our time our talents, and our strength. As Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. I heard that paraphrased once. The main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. (laughs) And that's true. And if we do that, we'll be filled with joy and happiness. Not only in this life, but forever in the life to come. Let us pray. Father... We've studied tonight the main principle of life in your universe. We've also noticed the principle of death, principle of selfishness, grasping, holding on. I ask, Lord, that you will implant your spirit of selflessness in the heart of each person here tonight. Help us, Lord, through the influence of your spirit, to tear out selfishness so that Jesus might sit on the throne of our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org